Hey y'all, and welcome to Feasting on Truth. I'm Erin Warren, and I'm so glad you're here. We are studying Stories from the Wilderness, a study of the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. We have seen God triumphantly lead His people from Egypt by way of the wilderness through the Red Sea. He's provided water for them. He's provided a place of refreshment at Elam. And this week we have three big stories about who God is. The wilderness is the place where the redeemed learn to walk. And we are going to see how God continues to show his people and us his unchanging character, even when we are in the midst of hard places. Before we dive in, if you're anything like me, you find yourself weary these days. I want to tell you about a great resource for helping you in your Bible study, helping you um, transform your prayer life, helping encourage you in these places of weariness and exhaustion and loneliness. The Enjoy God's Word online Bible conference is this coming weekend, October 1st and 2nd. But since it's fully virtual, no matter when you're listening to this, you can buy tickets and get access to the teaching videos, Q&A sessions, and even a workshop on studying Greek and Hebrew words, which is the one I'm most looking forward to. Um, You can watch when it's most convenient for you. And I know in these days, I hold my schedule very loosely. And so I know things happen. And that's what I love about conferences like this, where you can still be filled. You can still experience um, God through the truths that these women have to share. It's just $49 and it's not too late to sign up. You can go to the link in the show description for more information. Okay, like I said, today is a big one and a little bit of a long one. So let's get right to it. Here's Exodus 16 and 17. Welcome to um, our third week of homework um, recap. Today we are in Exodus uh, 16 and 17, Uh, trying to keep track of all of these every week. So we are following the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Um, We have walked through the uh, left Egypt. We have walked through the Red Sea. We have um, been with them as they sought water, and God gave them water, um, made their bitter water sweet at Mara. And then last, we left them in Elam, this place of refreshment. And as we are continue, we said last week, um, I quoted this quote from Stacey Thacker that says, the wilderness is the place where the redeemed learn to walk. Um, It is in the wilderness, this place that we are poised, we are positioned to see God in ways that we wouldn't otherwise see him. And as much as sometimes we hate to hear this, It is only when we are in places that require faith that sometimes we get to see his faithfulness. And so um, he is trustworthy. And and so we are continuing to learn to walk as we walk through the wilderness with the Israelites. So before I jump in to all of our amazing stories for tonight, let me open this up for you. Jesus, um, just thank you for your word. God, thank you for um, the privilege to gather together as women and to have the word of truth between us, Lord, as we come before you with open hands, Lord, ready to receive what it is you have for us. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, that your truth would be what comes from my mouth and that it would bring glory to you that your word would fall on us and it would accomplish the purpose for which you have set forth for it. Um, Thank you for the example of the wilderness. Thank you for your steadfast, long-suffering love over us. God, we know that too often our hearts are like those of the Israelites. And so I just pray that we would um, not be stuck and stagnant where we are, Lord, because of our circumstances, but that we would continue to learn what it means to walk as one redeemed by you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. All righty. Um, 
these three stories that we studied this week are, it was a lot. I don't know what I was thinking, putting all three of these together. Um, so as I go through this teaching tonight, I want to make sure that um, I don't get too deep in the weeds in the interest of time. And so I'm going to attempt to stay high level. Please know there is so much more. There's so much more than what we have time to cover here right now that we could go deep on this. I mean, we could study manna and the thread of bread throughout scripture for probably weeks and weeks. It could be its own Bible study. Um, and because we all love bread, I'm sure that, you know, it would, it would be a really fun one. So we're going to start here in Exodus 16, uh, verse one, they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, what that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. We sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, for the people shall go out and gather a day's portion that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord as he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses, uh, grum, and Moses went, said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near for the Lord has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard your, the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. So we are in the second month since they have left Egypt. And Moses is making sure to give us these timelines for us so that we know um, the, the time that has passed since they have left. And they left Elam, which was that place of refreshment with the, the 12 springs and the 70 palms. And they are moving into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And they're hungry. And they start complaining. And yet again, they complain to Moses and Aaron, who continue to say, why are you grumbling against us? Um, your complaint needs to go toward God. And, and we see here um, that they, uh, God sees that he hears their complaint. Regardless of who they complain to, they complain to Moses and Aaron, but yet God still answers their complaint. And God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. So he knows what is in our hearts. He knows the, the cry of our hearts. And from this side, we can often judge their cry to go back to slavery. We can say, your life was harsh, and we know what awaits them in the promised land. But we have to remember that these people did not know what awaited them. They were going out in faith. They were walking without knowing where they were going. And in a, a lot of ways, not even knowing who this God was that was leading them. And that is why God continues to show them himself in the wilderness. He says, um, this whole book, remember, this journey is meant to remind the people who their God is. And when we are in the wilderness, as I said, we are poised to see God in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. It's where we learned what it means to walk with God. And if you remember back to week one, they made no provisions for themselves. So they have nothing to eat except that which God is going to provide for them. 
And so we see here that God is going to test the people. Now that word in English to us kind of has a harsh meaning, but in Hebrew, the word means to prove, which um, I looked up in the English dictionary just because sometimes you're like, what does that mean to prove? Um, but it means to learn or to find out by experience. So God is really, when he says he's testing, he is teaching them. He is trying to teach them who he is and he is showing them as they go away, go along the way, um, who he is because he wants to be the Yahweh of their life. He wants them to fully rely on him. And so he is training their hearts to trust in his character. Um, we don't develop faith until we have to exercise faith. And so um, he says, he hears their complaint and he's going to send quail in the evening and bread in the morning. And the purpose is that they would know that he is the Lord, their God. Now that name there, is Yahweh Elohim. It means supreme God judge. He is telling them that he is the supreme God. He is above all other gods. Remember, they have grown up in Egypt. They have grown up um, within a, a um, polytheistic society. And so he is saying, I am the one supreme God who is over all, and you will know it by the way that I provide for you. And he says, you will have morning bread in the morning. You'll have bread to the full. That Hebrew word for full, it means to be satisfied. He's not just going to give them a little bit. He's not just going to give them enough to tide them over daily. He is going to provide for them exactly enough to be satisfied completely, to have no lack, to be filled to the full measure. He is helping develop the dependence on him. And remember, we've been talking about how, how uh, maturity in our faith, in following God, is opposite of maturity in the world. So maturity in the world is about our independence, but maturity in our relationship with God is about dependence. The more dependent we are on him, uh, the more the more mature we grow to be in our walk, the more dependent we are on him. So verse 13, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, uh, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up there on the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, Whoever had gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever had gathered little had no lack. Each of them had gathered as much as they could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So in the evening, the quail came, and in the morning, they go out to find this fine flake-like thing on the ground. Um, we'll see in a couple of verses, it was white like coriander seed, and it was sweet like it had been made with honey. And they said, what is it? That's what manna means. Manna literally means, what is it? And they were each to gather as much as they could eat and measure it by an omer. So they were each to have an omer of manna. But did you catch the miracle? that when they went to measure it, whoever had gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever had gathered little had no lack. And so no matter what they gathered, it was exactly what they needed for that day. So God provided every day, every single day, morning by morning, exactly what they needed for that day to be completely satisfied, to be completely full. 
And they were commanded not to leave any of it until the next day. So those who didn't listen the next day found that they had saved this manna over for the next day and it bred worms and it stank and it was nasty. But remember, they each had exactly what they needed for that day. So that meant for them to hold some over that they actually had to deprive themselves of what they needed for today and hoard it for tomorrow because they didn't trust that God would do what he said that he would continue to provide for them day after day. And so they held, withheld food that they needed for that day out of a distrust that God would provide it for the next day. And then every sixth day, they witnessed another miracle. Verse 22, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside at the morning and Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you a Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place and let no one go out from his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. On the sixth day, they would go out and they would collect. And when they went and measured it, it was two omers. And the leaders go to Moses and Aaron and go, what do we do? It's two, it's double. And if we hold it over, it's going to stink and braid worms. And Moses says, no. The Lord has given this to us so that tomorrow we can rest. So tomorrow we can take a break from gathering. Tomorrow, he calls it, is a holy Sabbath. So when they woke up on the seventh day, the manna had not spoiled. The manna did not fall in the wilderness. And they did not have any lack again. God made what they had gathered enough for two days for them to be filled to the full. And yet some still went out looking for it. They continued to struggle to trust God. And God's response is, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my laws? He had given them this gift, this holy Sabbath. Now, this in the, um, is considered the law of first mention. So this is the first place in the Bible where we see the word Sabbath. We see it in theory in creation where God rested on the seventh day. But this is the first time this word Sabbath is used. And Moses um, uses the word holy Sabbath. So anytime we see the word holy, um, it should our mind should go to set apart, which means it's different. It's different than all the other days. Um, it, and so uh, the Hebrew word for Sabbath means to cease, to pause, or come to an end. And so we see this day that is set apart to cease gathering, to cease working. It was meant to be a day that would mark his people because they would look different than the world. They would... Um, And it would show themselves that they operate a way that is different than the world operates. And God modeled this from the beginning of creation. And we see that man was created on day six. And on day seven, man's first day on earth was a day of rest. Nancy Guthrie in her book, Even Better Than Eden, says, The weekly Sabbath was intended to jog Israel's collective memory concerning God's sufficiency and supply in the past, and his promise concerning the future. 
they were to remember his work of creation as well as his work of redemption. Sabbath keeping would set God's people apart as being so well taken care of by their God that they could take a day to rest. The Sabbath was going to set them apart. It was a gift to them because they had been slaves and slaves don't get a day off. And I think probably some of them going out on that seventh day was rooted in the habit of them continuing to work day after day after day after day after day. But God has given them this day and said, this is a day you get to trust me to take care of you. And by us ceasing, by us um, trusting him to take a day off, we are saying, put a set apart day and saying, we are going to operate different than the world and we're going to trust you, Lord, to provide. Because trust issues are often control issues. And um, the question of the Sabbath is, what are we grappling for control over in our circumstances when we are not willing to take a Sabbath rest? Priscilla Shire in her Bible study, Breathe, which talks a great deal about Sabbath, says, because believing that um, doing less can somehow produce more requires a resilient faith. It takes unshakable, concrete trust in God, the kind that won't topple even in an earthquake of doubt, to maintain the confidence that allows you to stop even when everything in you and around you says, keep going, keep pushing, keep gathering, keep, keep persisting. God wanted them to trust him, not only trust him, not only in their, his ability to provide, not in their ability to provide for themselves. And that's what we've seen this whole journey thus far. God had them leave with no provisions for themselves so that they had nothing to do but to trust God to provide for them. And he is taking that a step further with this gift of Sabbath, this gift of rest. But along the way, over the course of the next thousand years, this simple gift was made into a burden. Religious leaders added over 350 laws about what it meant not to work on the Sabbath. And we read this week in Matthew 11 and 12, how Jesus came to redefine Sabbath. How when we quote these verses from Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We love to quote those verses and talk about how Jesus calls us toward rest, that he can take whatever it is that we have. But he is not merely saying he's going to take our burden. He is saying to walk with me and to learn from me. This is the, where the redeemed learn to walk. And then we saw as we move into verse 12 that all of that he just said takes place in the context of Sabbath. And he goes on to redefine and say, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus um, and um, he has come to say, I have given you rest. I'm setting this back to what my father meant for it initially to be a day of trust, a day of releasing control, a day to say, God, I don't have to strive not only for what we have in this world, but also for my own salvation. I don't have to strive to come to you that the, the burden that he gives us or the burden he takes from us is one of the heaviness of religion and, and gives us one that is covered with his grace. And I did a teaching on this passage in a little bit more in depth um, about two years ago. And so I'm going to link that um, in the show description so that um, if you want to hear more about this, because I could go on and on and on and on about Sabbath rest, but here's the big idea I want you to know. Sabbath is rooted in trust in God and his character, um, that he is who he says he is, and that this 
um, practice of Sabbath sets us apart from the world. But here's the other thing I want you to know, because remember, we've been kind of keeping track of memorials. This is a memorial. The day of rest is a weekly reminder that he is enough and that we can trust him with our future. All right, so uh, let's wrap this up. Now the house of Israel called it its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout the generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt and Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to the habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And omer is a tenth part of an ephah. Um, so he gives them yet another memorial. He says, take this uh, manna, an omer of manna, put it in a jar and put it um, before the Lord. And it actually ends up in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. And it's meant to be a reminder of how God provided for his people in the wilderness. And part of that was because thousands of years later, Jesus was going to come. And there was going to be a line drawn from this moment to Jesus. In John chapter six, um, we see God, Jesus feed 5,000 people and um, they come to the other side of the lake. They follow him the next day and they want more bread. They are asking him to feed them again. Now, bread gets a bad rap here today. Um, it's something that's like an extra thing on the side. Um, it's not the main meal. And it's um, something that tides us over while we're waiting for the real meal to come. But for their culture and for them today, and even in some Middle Eastern cultures today, bread is essential. It was how they got the bulk of their nourishment. And so they're not just asking for some fluffy bread to have while they wait for their meal. Bread was their meal in many cases. So the big idea I want you to understand is that without bread, they die. They have to have bread in order for them to continue to live. And so when they come to Jesus asking for more bread, he says, you just want more. You're only seeking me because you want more food for your stomach because you've left with a full stomach. And they want a sign like their fathers who ate manna in the wilderness. And here's how Jesus responds in John 6, 48 through 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for my life of the world is my flesh. They wanted nourishment for their stomachs, but Jesus offered them sustainment or nourishment for their souls. They wanted earthly satisfaction, but God gave them eternal sustainment. The manna points us to Jesus, the living bread that came down from heaven to give us eternal rest for our souls. And again, there's a lot more there that I could go into, but um, if you go back to the John 6 teaching from the John Bible study, um, it's in season one of the podcast or in the John um, playlist on you, there's a lot more there too. So um, I want to get through quickly in my last few moments here, um, chapter 17. So we see, um, uh, here we go, verse one of 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with this and said, give us water to drink. Again, going to Moses. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirst there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring this up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. 
So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with some of the elders with you, some of the elders of, of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. They tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so again, we see the people thirsty. And again, they go to Moses. And again, they complain that they are going to die out here of thirst. And God hears their cry. Um, but it says here, um, in, so Moses says, why do you test the Lord? And um, God, so here's what I want us to know. I thought there was a place. So Moses calls out that they are testing God. Now this is important because um, remember God is testing them. God is proving them. And this is why it's important for us to know those decisions because a lot of times we debate this idea of what it means to test God. But in this context, what he's saying is that God is proving them. They are learning by experience. So God is trying to help them grow in their trust of God by their experience. But that doesn't happen the other way around. God doesn't need to be tested because he's already pure. He doesn't need to be proved because he is already holy and true. It's our hearts that need to be purified. And in fact, even in the Jewish law in Deuteronomy 6, 16 through um, 19, I'm just going to read the first part. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And so he's saying, you don't put the Lord your God to the test. He does not have to prove himself. He is already proved true. And this takes place at Mount Horeb, which is also called the mountain of God. This is the place where Moses met God in the form of the burning bush. Um, and so this story, a lot of these stories that we read in the wilderness, we see referred back to in New Testament um, as examples to us. And so we see Paul referring to this story about testing God in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, verse one, he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, less, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Jump to verse nine, we must not put Christ to the test as some did and were destroyed by serpents. We're gonna get to that story, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things that happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. That's for us. All of this is written down so that we might learn from it on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So we see here that this rock, this rock that the water is coming from is a, uh, points us to Christ. And again, the temptation of this world even in our lack, um, is meant to draw us to the rock, to God, to Jesus, to mature us, to remind us of our dependence on him, to help us learn by experience. Um, oftentimes when we read this, we think of these big sins that God gives us this back door to get away from, you know, like we think about it as adultery or um, drugs or alcohol, like if we were confronted with drugs, God would give us a way to leave the room, like a physical escape. But 
Paul is teaching this in the context of idolatry. And idolatry is anything that we put trust in more than we put our trust in God. And so we can see here, um, I was listening to a sermon this weekend that was talking about um, how worry reveals where our trust is. And I would say that in the case of the Israelites, that the complaint shows us where their trust is not. And so their trust continues to not be in God who is able to, um, to provide for them in the wilderness. Um, back to the first Corinthians passage, the Greek word for escape, it's not merely a way out of temptation or a way not to be tempted. The Greek word comes from these two root words that mean out from and move forward. So properly, it means moving out from and to the outcome or a to a new destination. So it's not merely an escape away. It's a way for us to turn from the sin that tempts us in our life to not trust the God who is able to provide for us and instead move toward a new destination, a new place, a new level of trust, a new level of dependence, a new level of maturity in him. We must continue to trust in the one who continues to prove himself faithful to us and move toward him. And while they are in this place of rest, in this refidum, that's what that means. It's a place of rest. So God gives them Sabbath. He moves them to refidum, which is a literal place of rest. And while they are there, an enemy comes after them. Verse eight, then the Amalekites came and fought with the Israelites at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. So Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So Moses's hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. And say a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So the Am Amalekites, come to um, Rephidim to fight Israel, to go to war with Israel. And we ha I had you in the homework look up where the Amalekites came from. This is why genealogies are so important because they, they teach us so much about these people groups, especially as we are gonna continue forward in this study and as the Israelites continue to meet um, uh, different foes along the way to know where they came from. So the Amalekites are a semi-nomadic tribe that descended from Esau. So remember the father of Israel is Jacob and um, the Amalekites descended from Esau. Jacob and Esau are brothers. If you'll remember, Jacob was the younger, Esau was the older. Esau sold his birthright to Jacob and Jacob took his birthright, his inheritance, which the firstborn in their culture got everything. That's why the, the plague of the 10th plague of killing the firstborn was so powerful because it took away the future hope of, of their entire country. And so um, the Amalekites um, are part of Esau's uh, blessing that he gets from Isaac, if we can call it that, um, was that he was um, going to... Uh, his descendants are gonna live in the desert. They're gonna live away from fertile soil. And you can see that in Genesis 27, 39 through 40. Now the Israelites, even though they left in battle formation, they left Egypt, if you remember that, they have been slaves. They have never fought a war. And so Moses tells them, Joshua, this is one of our first instances where we hear Joshua, 
um, to take them in and fight. And he's going to stand on top of the hill. And while his arms are raised, they're winning. While his arms fall, they're losing. And so Aaron and her um, come alongside of him and they hold his arms up. And when he grows too tired, they get a rock for him to sit on. And he sits on the rock and he holds up his arms with the staff of God in his hand. That's important. And eventually they are victorious. And God and Moses call, builds an altar and he calls on the name God of God, Yahweh Nisi. That's N-I-S-S-I is the name, Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. And there's two takeaways I kind of want us to focus on. And the first is Aaron and her. Moses couldn't win this battle alone. He needed Aaron and her to hold his arms up. In our homework this week, we went to Colossians 4.12, um, and we meet Epaphras, who is, um, Paul talks about how he is struggling on the behalf of the church in his prayers, that they may stand uh, mature and fully assured in the will of God. That Greek word struggling or wrestling, it's the same word for contest or fight. It means to endeavor with strenuous zeal. This is a man who is going to battle over the maturity of the Colossian church. Not so that God will heal their diseases, not so that they will have money in their bank accounts. He is wrestling on their behalf for their maturity and dependence on Christ. And we need those people in our life. Um, the Greek word where he talks about fully assured, it means to bring to full measures, fully carried out. We need women in our life who are like Epaphras, who are like Aaron and her, who are holding up our arms in battle, who are struggling on our behalf, on their knees, um, that are praying us toward the will of God. And the will of God we see in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is our sanctification. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. <laughs> sanctification is a big churchy word that means that we separate from the things of the world and we move toward the things of God. We're set apart. We're holy. We're different. And we are learning to walk and follow him in maturity. I call these my tear the roof off friends. The, like the people who would tear the roof off the four friends to lower their friend to Jesus's feet. I want friends who are going to be willing to do whatever it takes to bring me to the feet of Jesus, not just so that my life here will be good, but so that my life for eternity would be mature and full and complete and saint towards sanctification. And when we are in a battle, we need those people more than ever praying for us. I was at a conference a few years ago where Mary Beth Chapman was speaking. She was um, the wife of Stephen Curtis Chapman. And she said, sometimes when we are in a hard place, we can't believe it for ourselves, but other people can believe it for us. We need people like Aaron and her who will hold our arms up and believe it for us. And I know in this season of isolation and loneliness, so many of us have experienced um, that separation from the people. And I'm so thankful that we have technology, thankful that we have things like Zoom and apps like Voxer and Marco Polo and, and FaceTime and, and to Google Meet, whatever it is, to um, continue, let's continue encouraging one another. Let's keep showing up to Bible study and praying with one another in whatever format we are able to do because we need each other and we need to be lifting each other's arms up. And the last thing I want to touch on is um, God's name, Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. Now, I didn't understand this for a really long time. I was like, this is weird. The Lord's my banner. He says like, happy birthday or something. Like, I don't understand. Um, but when I was doing research on this a couple of years ago, I learned that the Hebrew word refers to a battle standard or a flag that accompanied soldiers into battle. 
And so he's holding his arms up as a banner to point to the strength of God. And this did three things for um, the soldiers. One, it gives them hope. This banner would give them hope because it would remind them who they're fighting for. For the people of Israel, Moses' staff was that banner. That's why it's so important that we remember he was holding his staff. That staff represented the power of God that was over them. It's what helped separate the sea. It's what turned the Nile into blood. It's what took the um, bitter water at Mara and made it sweet. It's what just brought water out of the rock. That staff was a representation of God's um, power over them. And so holding that banner and calling the Lord my banner showed, um, gave them hope. But it also told the enemy who you were fighting for. And so carry, um, it was a uh, carrying the name of Yahweh Nisi is carrying the name of the great God over you. And the enemy sees that. And the enemy quakes because the banner also represents victory. It flies to signal victory. And if you listen to the our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. Francis Scott Key was actually imprisoned on a British ship out in the water. And he's watching this battle rage. And all night, he the rocket's red glare and all those things are going off. And he has no idea what's going to happen in the morning. And in the morning, as the sun rises and the smoke has dissipated, he looks and he sees the American flag still flying. And he knows the Americans have been victorious. Yahweh Nisi, our God, is victorious. Romans 8, 37 through 39. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, or height, or depth, or anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have abundant victory, more than conquerors, abundant victory because of our Yahweh Nisi. And the last thing that it gives them, it gives them hope, it gives them victory, it gives them refuge. It was a rally point. Blue Letter Bible in talking about this um, Hebrew word says that it showed the people where to assemble and it was to be seen from far off. Psalm 60, verse four through five says, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer us. We can flee to the name of Yahweh Nisi, our Lord, our banner. He is the place we run to. And we see this altar. It's the first time an altar is mentioned in Exodus as another memorial to tell the generations to come that they would remember that their God gives hope and victory and refuge. My friend Amy Newson calls it finding Jesus in the junk because an altar is a place of gratitude. It signified a place to be thankful for what God had done and who he proved himself to be. And the places of thankfulness, the Jesus in the junk, as Amy calls it, um, are places of thankfulness in the wilderness. And it's always rooted in God's character. He is Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is our banner, our hope, our victory, our refuge. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. Nothing is too difficult for him. He is El Roy, the God who sees. Nothing and no one is hidden from his sight. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is not distant. He is not far off. He is right there with us. He is in our midst. He is Yahweh Jireh, the God who provides. He is omniscient, omnipotent, living water, the bread of life, Elohim, the supreme God judge. He is faithful, victorious, sovereign, trustworthy, true, compassionate, long-suffering, praise Jesus, miracle worker, the God of rest. Would y'all pray with me? Lord, thank you for your character. Thank you for these stories that remind us who you are that you have given us this gift of rest, that you are trustworthy. Lord, that you are the living water, that Christ the rock, Lord, that we don't have to test you. We don't have to prove you. Lord, you are proven and true and holy and pure already. 
and that God, you are our banner over us. You are a banner that tells us where we hope, where we place our refuge and where we are victorious. I pray for us as we go out this week in this study, Lord, that you would continue to show us your holiness and your goodness and your greatness. In your name I pray, amen. Whew, okay, I know that was a lot, but really there is so much in these two chapters. And I don't know that I was fully able to articulate what Sabbath means today. We live in this go, 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 go world. And um, I feel like as we are coming out of a season of just stopping that our natural inclination is one to make up for that lost time and to keep going um, and go at a faster rate than we were even before. And it's not easy to stop. It's not easy to lay down what is troubling us and trust that God will do what he says he will. Jeremiah 6, 16 says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the road and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. When we refuse to rest, when we refuse to take a Sabbath, when we refuse to walk on his way, it not only shows our lack of trust in God, but it also reveals our inability to give up control. If we can't step away, if we can't cease, if we can't stop, if we keep picking back up the things that we lay at his feet, we are holding on to what my husband calls the illusion of control. Because at the end of the day, we really don't have as much control as we think we do. And so the invitation of Jesus is to lay it all down, to be willing to rest in his character and his provision and walk with him on the good way. That is where we find rest for our souls. And let's face it, y'all, in honor of my friend Linda, who does that? Where else can you find the rest he offers? Where else do we find permission to cease? And on top of that, in our ceasing, see multiplication like only God can do. It's not easy. And y'all, I definitely struggle with this. It's hard when we don't know what the future holds. But he is calling us to surrender our will for his will, our way for his way. And we have to be willing to live with what John Mark Comer calls holy uncertainty, to trust that the supreme God, the creator of the universe knows, and that's enough. He said in our theme verse, I have seen your going through this great wilderness. The Lord has been with you. You lack nothing. I'll see you here next week. <laughs>